Hello guys and welcome back for another episode on Fitness on the Go. I'm joined once again by Dr. Donellan. Hello, Warren. Hello, Johnny, and hello everyone listening. So today we are going to get our teeth sunk into how to get out of ruts and how to break bad habits um, and also how to how to pull yourself out of a potential relapse. And I think relapse is quite a strong word, actually saying it out loud. But, um, you know, a relapse could be on any magnitude, really. It could be it could be a small relapse. It could be a really big relapse. But ultimately, how to pull yourself out of that um, as quickly as possible. And I thought this would be a really good episode to um, record now um, because of the time of year I have found amongst my own clients they or some of them are struggling a little bit myself included actually I've, I've felt a difference in the last couple of months just with regards to feeling in a little bit of a lull um so I thought it was a really good opportunity to just kind of explore this area and yeah just try and come up with some practical advice with Warren on the psychological end and the theory end uh, and me yeah down in the trenches so um yeah where should we start Warren do you want to open up with your thoughts I think yeah, it's a really interesting area and, and I completely um, agree with what you said there around um, reflecting on, on, on your own um, health and behaviour this time of year. You know, the nights are drawing in and the weather and it can feel, it can disrupt your habits, can't it? You know, I was running like every other day throughout the summer and now, I've, you know, I might run once a week. I might do a part run once a week, so... There's, there's a whole multitude of, of factors. I think it's important to perhaps start by chatting about um, what do we mean, if we're talking about the psychology of bad habits and, and how things creep back in, what do we mean by bad habits and why yeah. are they problematic? Yeah, so I guess it's like um, things you want to stop doing that you potentially have done for a while. So if you've been, I guess it could be stopping a bad habit or continuing a good habit so if you've started like you example example there uh with the running uh you know you said you were running a lot more frequently and and you've now stopped that habit uh, or you're doing it less frequently so that might make you feel you know not great about it and then it's a case of how do you get back to that um so that you feel good about it again so i think there's two kind of ways to think about that you either get back to it get back to that baseline or you set a new expectation. And this is where understanding comes in. You have yeah. to understand why are you now struggling? What is the reason? It could be environmental. You know, it could be like we've just spoke about then, time of year. Um, and that's why it's important to have that self-awareness around where you are in your own life, um, what the external factors are, um, and, and not just having a one-size-fits-all approach. Yeah, definitely. But yeah, I guess like, you know, consumption of alcohol would be a common one. Um, smoking is a common one. Eating junk foods, lack of exercise, lack of activity, um, neglecting sleep. Yeah. I guess all the things that are kind of, I guess for the purpose of this podcast, against your health or detrimental to your health and well-being, I would consider as, as a bad habit. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's a solid definition and it, it fits in with, the psychological literature on this area as well and there are a lot of um there's a lot of published research in this area as well there's a lot of published research within health psychology which is kind of where i'm based yeah. looking at like behavior change and i'm sure you've read around that in your you know your role as a coach as well is like how do we meaningfully 
change behaviors can we change behaviors how do we do that and as you said uh, where we're at currently in our understanding is the evidence is quite clear that there is no one size fits all approach what works for one particular behavior isn't necessarily going to be transferable to another um and it what it is, i think the, the reason i pose that question johnny is because what we describe as bad habits some of these things might feel quite minor you know like you know, i've not been running quite as often or you know people might feel as though they might like a drink they might like to drink alcohol and they feel like as though they drink in moderation but the, we're not here to sort of party poop and you know we're realists yeah. <laughs> but i think the point is what well, in psychology we call them uh, modifiable risk factors so if you look at disease longitudinally which means you look at over the course of people's lives can we prevent certain um like disease trajectories or health concerns and this might not feel like it's something that affects you right now but obviously yeah. what, you, what you do now is is an investment in the future and we know like the sort of leading cause of death is around things like heart disease but even things like dementia, which I've done a lot of research on around how we can protect our cognitive faculties. I know the focus of a lot of our conversations has been on physical fitness, but looking at cognitive and mental health as well. Yeah, I think um, it's all about compounding interest over time. Like you just said, it's 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 the investment we make and it's an investment um, towards your health and well-being or it's an investment against and one 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 thing might not you know like one beer for example or two beers or three beers whilst having a meal you know that consumption of alcohol is not going to be detrimental towards your health yeah. but if you compound that by seven days a week three six five days a year versus you know not drinking at all your health will be in a much better place if you didn't drink the three beers a day yeah uh, it's the same with like your sleep if you got an extra hour of sleep every single day let's say you sleep an average of seven hours a night and you feel like that's enough. If you've got, an, if you've got eight hours sleep a day for one day, you might not feel the benefits, but after a year you would feel the benefits massively versus getting an hour's less sleep a day. You know, after one day getting at six hours sleep, you, you know, you can get through the day fine, but after yeah. a year of only six sleeping six hours a week, there will be a noticeable difference across the board. Um, so it's, yeah. it's all about the compounding effects. And uh, something as well with like bad habits, it's it's like give an inch, take a mile. And how you do anything is how you do everything. So often we can break the seal if you want to think of it like that, you know, like, oh, um, I've had one chocolate. I'll just eat the whole tin. And it's not that singular action, but it's what comes after that. That is the problem. And, and that's where a, a compounding negative habit can really start to uh, take hold. Uh, yeah. I don't know if you've read Atomic Habits by James Clear, or if you're, if you are you aware of James Clear? I am aware of it. You've mentioned it before, and you're not the only one actually to mention it. I'm going to give it. I'm going to give it a go. I've got quite a few books on the go at the minute. But it's, it's, <laughs> it's definitely honestly, a book. That, it's definitely yeah. something I want to read, both personally and professionally. It's honestly um, a game changer. Yeah. Um. But yeah, he talks all about like how one simple action is in, insignificant, but it's about the compounding interest. And yeah. it's literally like one small thing can change your entire life trajectory. You know, that's how important it is and, and how the power is in the daily. Um, yeah. Really I think it's important to notice as well that 
the reason it's difficult to see these things through and stick to these things is because our brains are not always wired to help us. You know, our, if you look at the, the way our, we've talked in previous episodes about our brains still think we're, you know, hunter-gatherers gathered around a campfire. They haven't evolved. Obviously, the prefrontal cortex is essentially what makes us human. But yeah. they haven't really evolved at the same rate as technological change. But our brains are wired, they're still wired around seeking short-term rewards, mm. pleasure. They're wired around avoiding threat. And they're also wired around um, a sense of belongingness, mm. which is because we are social creatures. Yeah. And often those three almost predispositions sometimes feel as though there are odds with certain changes that we're trying to make in our lives. So really you've got to, and it, the good news is, although it is wired, it's not fixed. These things are um, modifiable, as I said, it's just that it's difficult because we're, we're working with connections in our brain, which are really, really deep and, and obviously go back many, many centuries. So that this is not an easy, an easy task. I think, um, yeah, like you say, the brain the brain hasn't developed and it was very much suitable for our world back then. And now the environment's changed. So, for example, back then it would have been beneficial to grab the low-hanging fruit from a tree, you know, and get that sugar fix. Whereas now the sugar is so readily available in shops in the form of chocolate, sweets, cakes, cookies, biscuits, crisps, whatever you want. You can have it with many, many different t- textures, flavours, uh, very cheap and you can get delivered to your door so that low-hanging fruit is quite literally readily available now in the form of whatever you like so the environment has changed but our brains have not but this is a thing you can change your environment and you can set your environment up for success and this is what the book talks about as well like um the atomic habits book is like how one of the one of the there's four ways to instill good habits and one of them is to make it easy so something like remove all junk food from your cupboards if it's not in your cupboard you won't eat it the temptation's not not there and just on a little side tangent as well i heard something the other day from uh, a guy called ben bergenon who's like uh, a coach himself big in the crossfit space he said you only need to be disciplined once through the week um and that's with your food shop you know, yeah. like you don't need to be disciplined day after day, evening after evening. If you are disciplined with your food shop, you will not buy those types of foods then. Uh, and I thought that was really powerful because it's like just yeah. making life a lot easier. Um, I'm yeah. smiling here. You can't see it if you're listening, but because it's just so damn relatable. It is. <laughs> I, I, I love yep. the analogy of the low-hanging fruit as well. Because um, yeah. it is, we're, it, we're quite lazy creatures. Um, and I don't just mean that in the literal sense. I mean that the repercussions of that is we will always take, um, you know, as the crow flies. Um, so it, a lot of this is around anticipating. As you said, the, the food shop is a really great example of that. It sounds like a, a silly example, but I think it's really, really important because that's a really good example of, like, good preparation, anticipating future temptations and problems if you can put that time in that isn't an investment in and of itself around it's it's a it's a um being disciplined around that one decision can have far-reaching consequences but i mean i've listened to a podcast um earlier it was last week and there was really fascinating 
professor and a physician called Gabor Mate. And right. he's wrote a lot about trauma and, and things like that. He's, he's not a psychiatrist, he's, um, but he's, he's a medical doctor who's done a lot of <clears throat> work around also the complex interplay between people's you know, behaviour, thoughts and everything else. And something he said really stuck. It's like a you know, two-hour podcast. It's a bit of a commitment. But one thing that he said that really resonated with me and stuck with me is that one of the reasons why lifestyle changes don't stick is that the bad habits that were filling those gaps, they were serving a purpose, that they were, they were masking emotional pain. You know, you don't have to spend long with someone asking them about their behavior and their thought processes to find out that actually <clears throat> what looks to be a really benign act of picking up, you know, some chocolate when you said you weren't going to, or, you know, buying a packet of cigarettes when you said you were going to quit. Mm. It's because they've not been able to fill that void um, and we could do a whole pod, we could do a whole episode looking at what that emotional pain is and, and, and different ways in which you can fill that void. But this is what people, a lot of people don't understand, myself included, until I really thought about it, mm. which is you can't just expect to remove something which was a really prominent part of your life and then for it not to be painful and for it not to relapse unless yeah. you are. See, what I'm saying is it's about avoidance and removal of um triggers and temptation but you've also got to think about what are you going to do to fill that gap and if you don't fill that gap you are going to relapse it's as simple as that 100 i think that's powerful because you're doing the habit for a reason like you say it's usually to you know mask an emotional thing um and that's the way you cope so it's about finding out obviously there's there's ways that you could swap the habit to make it a more positive habit so for example you know it, it's about familiar familiarity like as well the reason we stay in a habit is because it's familiar even if it's not serving us it's familiar and whether it's familiar good or familiar bad we like the familiar yeah. and that's why i think a lot of people struggle to break out of bad habits because it's, it's familiar so for example you know overeating the evening they feel guilty they know it's wrong they're struggling with the weight but then they go back to it time and time again because it's that initial instant gratification, number one. But even though they know it's not what they want to be doing, it's familiar. So I think that's one thing that keeps people in negative habits, um, just the same way it would keep people in positive habits. Yeah. It really makes me think about there's no difference between the um, the emotional... Oh, sorry, there's no di no difference between that high that you get whether it's a positive experience or a negative experience, it's still an emotional high. And that's what people are addicted to. And, yeah. and this is almost going back into that trauma conversation. But when you remove it, there's that neutral, almost mundane experience that's not high and not low. And then you have to actually deal with the underlying thing. Yeah. Whatever that's... that is for somebody. And that's the hard bit. Yeah. It is. It's spot on. It's, whether it's positive or negative, it's it's all it's all emotion, isn't it? It's all um, arousal and stimulation, and and I think it comes down to motivation as well. That you alluded to it earlier mm. is, and I'll, perhaps we can say a little bit more about this uh, in a bit. But when you start breaking these these things down, I think one starting question is to try and get to the bottom of what it, what are your motivations for for, um, for for doing for doing what you do, and there's there's no 
right or wrong here. There's a lot of research around like um, how even things like mental health problems are adaptive responses. And that doesn't always sit well with people. They don't, what do you mean by that? Well, for example, if you've suffered a bereavement, then experiencing depression, which may or may not give way to, um, you know, um, bad habits, for want of a better phrase, later on, mm. you are doing that because you dep- it's, it's rational and it's adaptive to be depressed if you are grieving. Yeah. And so I guess the message is, you know, we're, we're branding it, we're branding them bad habits. They're just habitual behaviours. They do serve a purpose. And it's about what I always bang on about in this podcast, which is self-compassion. And it's not about demonising yourself. And it's not about demonising these behaviours because they are they have served you well. And if you get a bit, you know, a bit sort of um, hippie about it, and it's about almost being grateful for the fact that that has served its purpose, that has protected you in some way, but it's about realising that actually I, you know, time's time and I'm ready to move on. And I think timing is, is is really important, isn't it, as part of that? 100%, mate. 100%. You hit the nail on the head right there. It's about becoming conscious to your behaviours and, and like what you just said there about depression or mental health um, in general. Like I, I'm a big believer in it's it's not, you're not fixed in that. It's It's like, it's a period you go through. It's yeah. symptoms of it. You're like, you're not a depressive person or you don't struggle with it. You're not like, you're not an anxious person. You just go through anxious phases and you can stay in that cycle forever. But ultimately what I'm trying to say is you have full control over that. And it might not feel like that while you're in it, but ultimately you do. But like you say, it's, 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 it's served its purpose and habits don't just come from anywhere. You know, it's a learned behavior as yeah. a response to something over time. Mm-hmm. Um, so so with a learned behavior, you can't unlearn it, but it takes digging a little bit deeper and un- uncovering, well, looking at yourself, honestly, it's like, well, why, why do I behave that way? What, yeah. what does that allow me to cope with? And then it's about digging a little bit deeper into why. This is, this is something I wanted to speak about today um, is like, obviously working with with clients I speak a lot about this like because surface layer we work on nutrition we work on the training getting stronger improving health but these are the conversation conversations these are the conversations I have with clients where we really dig deeper into habits and negative habits and and mindset around habits and self-sabotage and all those all those areas that's the key to long-term change because yeah. anyone can drop a stone in eight weeks if they just clean up the diet. But it's like, that's a new habit in itself. And if you don't have an underlying desire of why you want to do that, then often you'll slip back into old habits at the first sign of a, a hurdle. So that's the true, um, the true where the true change happens is is really looking at that. So like a habit is is something like brushing your teeth, for example, a habit is something that just you do automatically, you don't have to think about it. When it comes to habit change, I find the first step is always awareness, you know, so looking at the habits you're doing and actually just being conscious of them, because when you can be conscious of them, that's when you can change them. And the idea is to become conscious of bad habits, then make the change to good habits consciously, which can require a little bit of time and effort and energy, but then 
repeating them for that long that they become the new norm and then yeah. just become subconscious again. Like, for example, if you go to the gym every day, three times a week, every week, three times a week for six months, it's probably going to stick if you're yes. consistent for that three months. Whereas uh-huh. if you skip every other week, it's probably going to be less less likely to stick. Yeah. Um, sorry, I just went off on a mad tangent then. No, no, it's not. It's not. It's, I was going to say, I think it's spot on. And I think, um, you know, we know a lot about the mind body connection but there's also a connection of course between our thoughts and our behaviors and I think really what you're saying there and it certainly chimes with my own personal experience and the research that I'm aware of is often the first step is the behavioral change because as you said what is not familiar to us is a threat and remember our brains are wired to avoid threat but then if we extend our comfort zone what was previously threatening becomes comfortable and then it becomes habitual. And then when behaviors feel less risky or less uh, threatening, then then changes in thoughts happen. And then it even, even changes in, in identity as well. You know, yeah. so if you, if you go to the gym enough, for example, then that becomes habitual. And then there can be a shift in your whole mindset in terms of like, um, how you view yourself as someone who is, you know, into fitness or so, or even the identity and the, and the sense of belongingness, which again, we know our brain is wired towards being part of part of a gym or yeah. a relationship that your clients have with you and you have with them. It's, it's all, it's all really important. Cause remember it's about moving things which are threatening and by threatening, we don't mean like someone attacking you with a knife. We mean things that are not familiar to us and not comfortable. The reason you go for that low-hanging fruit is because it's easy and it's familiar. Whereas if you've got to venture out into un, you know, un, uncharted territory, then that that is scary. And yeah. that's a really, a really important point. But it's so interesting hearing your personal and professional experiences because it does chime with um as I said, there's a literature on, it's called, there's whole literature around like behavior, tra- behavior change techniques. And there's one model which I picked out here, which would be interesting to get your thoughts on, is um, there's this like four part um, behavior change technique, mm. which is the first part is around, um, so this isn't in any particular order, but the first part is around action planning. Oh, yeah. So that is around what you said there around anticipating you know, if I've not gone shopping, then I'm more likely to order a takeaway just as a silly example. But it's also around what am I going to do and what goals am I going to set myself and how realistic those goals are. So that's the first part. The second part is around prompts and cues. So building up a literacy around what your triggers are. Um, Like, is it time of year? Do you overindulge at Christmas? Who doesn't? But what are you going to do? Or for the ladies, time of month. Absolutely. Chocolate. My partner, um, Jasmine, her whole PhD was looking at um, whether or not the menstrual cycle influences 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 people's alcohol consumption and craving and impulsivity. Oh, wow. She'd be a good guest. (laughs) Definitely. Definitely. So, yeah, prompts, cues, triggers. The third one is, and this chimes very much with with a lot of what you've been saying, is holding yourself accountable and being your own role model yeah okay and then the fourth one is focusing on past success because there's a lot of emphasis in there on like well you know 
folks focus on failure and all the times that you've tried a diet and it didn't work or you, you, know, you tried the gym and then you stopped going and then you started running and then you stopped running mm. looking at actually well let's flip on its head a little bit which things were successful which things were effective and the idea is if you identify the actions the prompts if you make yourself your own role model and you focus on past success rather than just past failure you're much more likely to elicit lasting behavioral change because that's the key word lasting anyone can change your behavior temporarily but how do we make it really true long lasting yeah no, that's powerful that's a really good for for um four way approach so just cover them again just for anyone listening back so it was action planning action planning prompts and cues prompts and cues might include things like you know knowing what your triggers are and things like that um holding yourself um, to account be, being your own role role model and then the other one is focusing on past success rather than just always looking at past failures yeah that's cool that's I just think- one example johnny of like um there's lots of i think there's different models there's, some, there's something like 80 last time i counted there's something like 83 different <laughs> theories of behavior change oh it's crazy um, but they all have a role to play um i mean i just want to kind of unpack that a little bit what you've said but like um after that, I want to speak about motivational interviewing, which I'm not sure if you've heard of. I'm sure oh, you have. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like, but so the action planning part of it, like, let's use the food shop analogy. Uh, that's that's something I'm big on with clients. Like, plan out your meals for the week. Um, it doesn't have to be an extravagant menu, but just planning out your evening meals can be beneficial. Then it makes the food shop a lot easier. Uh, another one, another great one as well for anyone listening is make sure you never go to the food shop hungry because <laughs> then you'll just buy whatever you you find. Yeah. Go uh, eat before you go, uh, make a plan and then just buy the buy the ingredients you need based on that. Um, the next one about prompts and cues, I think that's a really important one to bring up because like you said, anyone can change a habit. You just remove the prompts and cues. So for example, cigarettes, you don't buy cigarettes, you don't surround yourself with anyone who smokes and you literally just don't, don't have any cues. Um, well, remove as many cues as possible. But when it comes to actually understanding your cues, it's like, right, I want to, let's use TV as an example. I want to snack when I watch TV. So actually thinking about that as you're experiencing it, you know, gives you then a choice to break that subconscious habit and consciously think, right, I'm craving food right now because the cue is the TV and I don't want to do that anymore. So I'm going to not eat or I'm going to have a cup of tea instead. Yeah. And it's about that that kind of deeper level work. And going back to what you said, usually it's a, the behavior that comes first. And what's quite interesting is it's like a three, three kind of phase approach where it's change the behavior, then change your thinking patterns, then change your identity and how you have to change your identity for that lasting long change. And I'll use myself as an example. I smoked for many years from the age of 17. I picked it up as initially it was marijuana habit. I would buy back when they used to sell 10 cigarettes in a box. Now they don't even <laughs> sell 10. I used to buy 10 deck with friends. And we basically used two, three cigarettes for the for the weed. And we'd have seven, seven cigs left. And I just smoked them just because they were there. Uh, then we started going on nights out. Then it became a social thing on nights out. Anyway, smoked throughout my early 20s. And the goal was to stop when Blake and I were born. Sorry, the initial goal was to stop when I became a PT. That didn't happen. 
the initial goal, uh, the, the goal after that was to then stop when Blake and Maya were born. That didn't happen. And then it was always like, I'll stop at New Year. I'll stop on my birthday. And eventually I stopped, uh, God, when was it? About three years ago now. And the thing that stops, I'd, I'd read different books on it. I'd, I'd, there's a book by, oh, who is it now? He's like, uh, it's like How to Stop Smoking by... Alan Carr. Alan Carr, that's it. I listened to his book, or I think it was his audio. or Yeah, it was definitely an audio book. So I listened to that. And I think it was in that where I read it. It's like, it's, it's, it's about saying like, I am not a smoker versus I am someone who is trying to quit. And that really kind of got me thinking differently about it. And I think I, I would actually say it's probably that book. I didn't stop immediately after it because I think the last page of it is like, right, I want you to light your final cigarette now. And then <laughs> you finished uh, this this page, you will not smoke again. Anyway, that didn't work. But the idea yeah. had been planted, that seed had been planted. And uh, I don't think it was too much longer after that. But something I always found as well, when I tried to quit, when I mentally said, right, I'm going to quit, it was almost like I increased my smoking up until that point because I was trying to get as many cigs in as I could before yeah. stopping. So it was almost like I knew something was going to get pulled away from me. So I actually leaned into it more. And this is why it's important when it comes to things like um, junk foods. You shouldn't put any food on a pedestal like chocolate. You know, it's not the devil, for example. A yeah. lot of people think that's the thing that makes me fat when it's not. It's just the overconsumption of it. So the more you put importance on something, the more usage you have you generally have of it and i definitely experienced that with uh with smoking but uh, i remember i went to berlin for my 25th birthday i think it was 25th um three years ago might have been 24th uh, but anyway i went to berlin and I, I bought like um it was a 27 pack of cigarettes which i've never seen before random number yeah yeah and i came home with about 11 left and i remember just um because my stepdaughter kira she smoked at the time she's now vaping I remember just giving them to her and saying, take these off me. I'm done. Mm. Cause I just felt disgusting. Like my, my, yeah. my breath. And I, that was the turning point. I just decided I'm not going to smoke anymore. Yeah. And I think the, the mental thought of it was like the 17 year old version of Johnny decided I'm going to start smoking, yeah. but I'm not that person anymore. And it was that identity shift. And, yeah. and I remember it like it was yesterday. And yeah, I mean, that that's when I stopped and I've, I've smoked since, you know, occasionally when I've been drunk, but you know, never, never on a daily basis again. It's literally been yeah. like maybe once every four months, five months, I'll have the odd cigarette on a night out and that's it. So, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for sharing. That, that is, I think it, it's so interesting because it's, um, it touches on a lot of what we've been saying, like the identity shift, yeah. saying I'm not a smoker. And then what I loved as well, the thing that you said about, this is something I did, it's something I started doing when I was 17. This was yeah. like, a 17 year old's decision mm. and it's about saying I'm um, you know like if it was something I was doing from me being 17 I'm, I'm 31 now yeah. I'm not the same person as I was then I mean I look back on myself as I mean I look back on myself as a 22 year old and I think I was a child <laughs> but if 17 I literally was like a child and that was a decision that, that former version of myself made which is no longer fit for purpose mm. it doesn't fit my current life and I've spoke on a previous episode about alignment mm. and there's a lot in that but I think one major determinant of our happiness there's loads of there's been loads of research on this is how aligned we feel to the kind of person we want to be yeah. and again if like people who uh, drink you know drink alcohol and 
and don't want to or, or wish they could drink less or the same with, with smoking. It's about saying, is, is this in line with who I am now and, do, and doing that work, as you said. But one thing I want to pose to you is, you know, this is all well and good us sitting here saying, you know, this, that and the other. But what happens when you do relapse? You know, like you said, because I, I think in, I, I can think of examples where like the, the bit you said there where like if you relapse, you'd probably end up increasing your consumption because I think that's a really common thing is like, let's say you've, you've been on the bandwagon and then you relapse and then you just say, oh, do you know what, sod it. And then you absolutely go for it. Yeah, like, I think it's, you... yeah, I think it's a good one. And, and I relapsed many times times over the years there's so many times you lose confidence in yourself you lose trust in yourself yeah you build up uh negative emotions towards yourself and that's the thing that that like we were speaking about before that's the emotional high even though it's a negative thing it's 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 potentially all you've ever known it's like oh i'm a failure you know i can't stick to what i want to do i can't make the change you start to talk down to yourself you have inner negative dialogue with yourself and it's it's a hard thing to break but yeah it's falling trap into that victim mindset. Like there was so many, so many times where I felt like a piece of shit, quite frankly, like I was, you know, Blake and Maya were, you know, less than one years of age and Yvette would be at work in the daytime and I would be looking after them and they would just be in the living room, like on the bouncers, on these little bouncing chairs that you can just kind of rock watching TV. And I'd go out into the back garden and have a cigarette and I'd keep the curtains open, you know, um, so I could still see them but I'd almost hide behind the corner and, you know, they can't, they probably don't remember this and they wouldn't have comprehended that what I was doing was smoking. But I remember thinking, I wonder if they, I wonder if they are going to remember this. And I wonder if, um, I wonder if they're, yeah, I wonder if they're going to remember this and and yeah. what age are they going to start to remember daddy was a smoker and, and, and thoughts like that would go through my head, yeah. but I'd still be doing the behavior. And that made me really dislike myself for a, a long time. It's called cognitive dissonance, yeah. where like we have two seemingly contradictory, we hold two seemingly contradictory ideas in our head. So on the one hand, you know, you feel terribly guilty. You're looking at your kids, and you know it's bad. But then, but then you're like, you sort, of, you're also that's what addiction does. That you're also feeding the addiction and finding loads of reasons why you shouldn't stop or that you should continue. Yeah, um, I think a lot of it comes down to two concepts. One is locus of control, because um, smoking is something you can control. The like, you know, the what your, your family, your life, your work, you could, it could be burning around you, but you can come home and have that cigarette or have that drink or eat that food or whatever yeah. it is for you. And the other one is self-efficacy, which is I always define it as your confidence in your ability to perform a task or put differently, your confidence in your competence. Yeah. And I think they're really two key, like, protective factors. If something feels controllable, then it feels comfortable and it doesn't feel threatening. But also, if we feel confident in our ability to um, continue on with a healthy behaviour or to avoid unhealthy behaviours, that's a real game-changer in terms of those modifiable risk factors that I said earlier. Yeah. Um, I think the control element is huge, especially with food. Like people can go two ways, um, overeating and controlling it by eating what they want, when they want, no rules. Yeah. And then I, what I've, you know, discovered over years of speaking to people about the nutrition and their eating habits, you know, obviously not naming anybody's names, but um, 
how people use under eating as a form of control you know yeah. like extreme restriction with food it's like oh well it's just it's just a way to control things and it's like wow you know yeah. that's against your health but i think environment society is a huge role to play i know we're, we're massive kind of caveman fans on this podcast but like <laughs> it's so powerful um to get back to our roots and like i don't think people would have struggled at least on this level because food was scarce back then it was a necessity it was a survival um a, a means to survival whereas now we majority of people in the world anyway do have access to food so now it's like well it's like that that kind of next level of problem that that first world mm-hmm. problem if you like um but yeah like i had i had a vet on my case 24 7 she smoked for like i think 12 12 plus years 16 years she smoked for um and she she's a little bit older than me if you didn't realize um, <laughs> she basically smoked for 16 years and she stopped um, prior to getting cancer but obviously with her having cancer mm-hmm. she's very health conscious now and she was just on at me fucking stink and you need to stop smoking yeah. and even even her being on at me it's so expensive even her being on at me and telling me all of these factual things didn't even make a difference but and it's it like you know i i didn't want to hear it and i also said just just leave me alone you know yeah. and like, like you just said then it's cognitive cognitive diff, diff, dissonance you know and I, I knew i wanted to stop but i was continuing the behavior and it was like yeah. almost two people yeah you know but- nuts the research is really clear on this is like, you know, fat shaming, just to give, you know, this, this fat shaming people doesn't work. Be, like, mm. In fact, not just that, but like focus on, if you take the glass half full, glass half empty approach, like focus on risk just doesn't work. Fo- you know, here's all the reasons why you should stop smoking. Here's a picture of some, you know, rotten lungs. Like we, we could have a whole pod, we could have a whole episode talking about health promotion campaigns and the reasons why they are flawed. Because if you are if you're addicted to something, seeing a picture of a dead body on a cigarette packet is not going to deter you. Yeah. And you know, there's there's loads of and there's there's a whole debate raging on about whether they should put similar labeling on alcohol and things like that. And it gets quite political because you mentioned food scarcity there, but. You know, a lot of people who live in poverty, you know, we know that food bank use has absolutely skyrocketed in the 21st century. It's an absolute disgrace yeah. when there's the amount of wealth that, that is present, but it's just in the, in the hands of very few people. But the problem is unhealthy food is cheaper than healthy food. So, okay, you can go out and buy raw ingredients and you can make a relatively healthy meal, mm. but the convenience coupled with the price point of yeah. fast food yeah. is just, it's just um, for some people, their only choice. And I think the whole fat shaming thing, and there's a lot of um, misconceptions, isn't there around, you know, ready meals and things like that, but actually for some people, and it, and it, it might be their only option and education is another issue, isn't it? People don't know how to cook. We don't teach our children how to cook in schools. Yeah um you know our parents will tell you like my mum tells me like that they they had like proper like home economics i know it's obviously it's a different time now but there's a lot more um core life skills that i think <laughs> our yeah. children should be taught about and, and i mean children i mean like from like my son is eight i mean like there's no reason why he can't be educated around finance management around mm. meal preparation yeah i think that's i definitely think there has been a, a realization 
um, like over over the last, I'd say, 10, 15 years, that there are a lot of gaps in the education system, just kind of, yeah, how, how we're raising our society, um, you know, even around mental health as well, like getting into schools, because if you get into schools, you're going to tackle things early. And obviously yeah. there's the home influence as well. And as parents, you need to work on that side of things, setting a, setting an example for your children and changing yourself because actions speak louder than words, right? Yeah. Um, but yeah, like getting into schools, I think, is an incredibly important thing. Something you said there about fact shaming and how it doesn't work, uh, that leads nicely onto what I wanted to speak about with motivational interviewing. So um, I read an incredible book called, here it is. So motivational interviewing in nutrition and fitness. Mm-hmm. This just in, in uh, this uh, introduced me to the whole concept of motivational interviewing and how like I need to now treat my clients as the expert of themselves and you know ask questions, ask the right questions and and get them reflecting and stuff. And it's it's a great book, um, but something that really um, was interesting about fact shaming is like a lot of a lot of clients um come to me who've had previous coaches or previous personal trainers um and i just in general know the con uh, the the perception of a pt is like militaristic boot camp you should not eat pizza yeah how come you fell off track on the weekend you know like almost like a, an authority figure yeah um, in, 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 like an, and a dictator and it's, it's just not like that at least from my end like because i believe that that can get results in the short term because it's it's out of fear it's not out of understanding and self-compassion. And, and that's where I try and come in with my clients is like more of a compassionate role as a coach. But then there is a line and and and, and it's it's a fine line to juggle and balance. Like on the one hand, we need to ex- we need to explore, we need to dig deep, we need to ask questions, we need to reflect. But then there's only so much you can talk about something before yeah. the action comes in. So I think behavior change is a very fine balance between um talking exploring and raising awareness yeah versus actually taking action doing that's doing yeah doing versus talking you know that's fascinating the phrase yeah yeah, the phrase talk is cheap i don't think talk is cheap but it is about that balance you know well it comes it's so fascinating it comes back to what you said about no one size fits all because even if you just take one of your clients or, or anyone who's listening, yeah. you know, we are such complex beings. And for some people, they might need that, not authority figure, but they might need that accountability and that push. Mm. Whereas others might need, you know, an arm around the shoulder. But it's, and they might need that, different things at different times. So that's your skill. And I don't think people realize the skill set that coaches like yourself have because you've got to, for every single one of your clients, you've got to know what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And I think all, you know, the motivational interviewing is really, really interesting. And, and there, I've, I've got colleagues at, at university who, who do research on motiva- motivational interviewing in, in different contexts. And yeah. it's shown to be really, really effective. But it's really interesting what you said around like up until a point, because yeah. ultimately, you know, at some point you've, you've got you've to do. And the reason you've got to do is because what we've just said then about behavior and how behavior then elicits changes in thoughts and identity. It's like counseling. You go for counseling and sometimes you can almost rely on that counseling to make the change for you. Yeah. Until you have the realization that it's not. And that's where the talking versus doing comes in. But yeah, I mean, 
working with lots of different clients over the years, there's a lot of different characteristic traits. People respond to different things. Like you say, some people might need an arm around the shoulder and might need that reassurance. And other people might need that straight to the point, uh, no bullshit kind of response. And sorry, I think a lot of it depends on um, the early kind of childhood attachments and relationships that they have throughout their kind of upbringing and, and what they respond to best because that ultimately is going to define who they are and what they respond to. Some people I've realized do not like taking f- uh, positive feedback and yeah. compliments and that's a struggle. And that can actually then on a deeper level make themselves sabotage um, just because like they're not used to that. So it actually makes themselves sabotage. So that's something that, you know, I've had to recognize in clients. I mean, to a degree, I, I am like that. Like I, I'm really bad at taking praise and compliments. And when I do, it's almost like I, um, it feels great, but it's almost like I self-sabotage myself off yeah. the back of it for yeah. whatever reason that is. Um, and, and, and it is, it's, it's understanding everyone's different. Yeah. And, and like you say, there's not a one size all fits approach with it. Um, what you said there about um, some people don't like praise, but it reminded me, I, I've taught many, many psychology students over the course of the last, it's my 10th year teaching psychology, <laughs> believe it or not. That's incredible. Um, and I've, over the years, I've had um, people from the armed forces, you know, like mature students who've, or even like people who've got experience through like the cadets or things like that. And it's always interesting because to that they always call me like there's one student who I won't name, but she always called me like Dr. Donellan. I was like, for God's sake, call me Warren. <laughs> but it was because she had this like cadets background and armed forces background, and it was like, oh, you know, it was around like rank and it was around and it was a it was a sign that it was a mark of respect. Mm. Um, but like for her, for example, it wouldn't have necessarily been effective to be gentle because actually she was she wanted that. She always wanted the the, the push. Um, And then another thing I thought about is self-stigma. So it's kind of like there's the whole societal attitude, the old media representations of the ideal body, the perfect body, the beach body and all. And I think men, there's a misconception that this doesn't affect men. It does affect men as well. Women are susceptible, but so are men. But I think sometimes if, if a client comes to you and has, I don't know, like a a certain body shape in mind or like a bikini, you know, they're going on holiday and they want to tone up or whatever. Yeah. And, and there's an element of self-stigma there, which is like the internalization of society's expectations of what you should look like. Then who yeah. are you to, who are you to challenge that? If, if she's got, or he's got a really clear idea of where they want to be. And, and they, are, they, you know, they might even joke about being fat. Yeah. You know what I mean? But it, it wouldn't be appropriate there, would it, to be like, well, you know, if, 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 they're, if they seem okay in themselves and that's part of their identity and that's one of their motivations, then who are we to tell them otherwise? 100%. I think that's, yeah, that's very powerful. And a lot of my clients or ex-clients or people I've worked with over the years actually seem to stop themselves at a point when they're getting too lean or have lost too much body weight because it's like people start to comment on the way they look. Oh, you're looking thin, yeah. you're looking gaunt. Um, are you eating enough? Aren't you taking this health and fitness thing a little bit too far? Um, to the point where like clients have actually said, right, I want to stop losing weight now. And it's like, 
hang on a minute, you wanted to get rid of your belly fat because often when you start dieting, you get this kind of sunken face gaunt look. And yes, it does look different, especially when people notice, you know, let's say you've got quite a filled out face and then you suddenly dropped quite a bit of weight, especially around your face. People are going to notice a difference and it can come from place of concern. You know, are you eating enough? It can come from um, sometimes place of jealousy, uh, sometimes fear of losing that person. you know, uh, whether it be losing them because they're changing their habits and, and, and it makes you feel less significant or makes you feel like, you know, you should be changing your habits. And yeah, it comes from a fear perspective. Um, and that actually derails people. So I always explain this and frame this to clients at a certain point in their weight loss journey. Um, it's like, look, you're really starting to change body shape now and you're really starting to gain some momentum. Just to warn you, people, might actually start to say things, colleagues, work friends, that's the same thing, um, friends, uh, family members, just to warn you, this may happen. And and literally, like, the amount of times clients come back to me like, oh, my God, you're a yeah. mind reader. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, uh, yeah, so so pre-framing that is great. But um, what was I going to say? Yeah, so I think, I think that it stops people um, actually making progress sometimes because of that societal expectation, you know? Yeah. I'm 31 and my mum still says it now. You're looking thin. Yeah. And like, I, don't, I don't think people really are making light of it now, but it pisses me off sometimes because it's like, yeah. you know, like, I've been, okay, I've never been, I've never been particularly, I've, I've, I've never been technically overweight, but obviously we all fluctuate. And it's like, as a man, I don't know, maybe this is my own self stigma, my own prejudice, but I don't want to be told I'm looking really skinny. It's yeah. just not what a man wants to hear. It's not what I want to hear anyway. Yeah. Not least from my own mother. <laughs> so no, no one's immune. And that's someone who is like absolutely fundamental to my support network. So this can come from within. You support yeah, exactly. network. Never mind your enemies. Keep your, keep your friends and family closer. <laughs> yeah. I mean, when I, when I, uh, I did like my first official diet, if you like, last year. Um, and, you know, I, I got quite lean. And Yvette was like, oh, you're getting too skinny. I prefer you with a bit more meat <laughs> on you. Um, you know, you're looking quite gaunt in the face. Uh, but what people don't understand is they want to have this like really lean midsection with no belly fat. But you often have to, because the belly fat is typically the last place to go. Yeah. And it is the quote unquote stubborn place. Uh, and there's nothing you can do to target that area. Um, just so you know, it's a body fat is a full body process. But often you will lose it from your face initially. Um, that's the most noticeable changes. Um then the belly fat is usually the last place to go. So to get down to that really lean midsection, you often have to go like a lot deeper in terms of getting leaner, which means temporarily you'll have a quote unquote diet face. But when you come out of the other side of that and start to reintroduce more food again, your cells start to fill up with more water. Um, you start to store more glycogen, which is sugar in your muscles. So you do start to fill out again, but yeah. this time it's in all the right places. But yeah, it's, uh, it's very interesting that um sweet i feel like we've spoken about a lot and i think we need to do a part two to this warren because there's so much more i want to chat about i feel like today's been very um theory based so actually coming up with some like practical tips um and solutions on how to break behaviors and habit changes and a couple of frameworks to go from yeah Um, let's do a let's do a part two sweet well by the time i release this episode we probably will have recorded a part two i i predict so I'll probably put them out back to back. Um, nice. I'm actually putting out our last episode tomorrow. 
Um, so I'll put this one out in a few, well, in a few weeks and then we'll we'll get something else booked in anyway. But thank you so much for jumping on, Warren. It's been a pleasure, mate. No, as always, yeah. Thank so you. thanks for listening, guys. Tune in for part two uh, next week, hopefully.